everyone and welcome back to SALT Talks. My name is Rachel Pether and I'm a senior advisor to Skybridge Capital, which is a global alternative investments firm, as well as being the MC for SALT, a thought leadership forum and networking platform that encompasses finance, technology and politics. SALT Talks is a series of digital interviews with some of the world's foremost investors, creators and thinkers. And just as we do at our Global Soul Conference series, we aim to empower really big, important ideas and provide our audience a window into the mind of some subject matter experts. Today, we'll be speaking to His Excellency, Zulfikar Gadiyali. Zulfikar is the Executive Director of Directions Investment Holding Company, which is under the chairmanship of His Highness Sheikh Mohammed bin Sultan bin Hamdan Al Nayyan. Zulfikar's family business spans across Asia and the Middle East in the fields of real estate, hospitality, and trading. He co-founded Los Angeles-based entertainment company Cinemoir, which focuses on artificial intelligence and virtual reality. And he's also a major shareholder at publicly traded Encanto Potash Corporations. Zulfikar is involved in various social entrepreneurships projects. He's the chairman of Blue Sky Village, and he also sits on the board of BTOR Chain, which focuses on philanthropy using blockchain technology. Lastly, he's a board member of World Defence Holdings and ING Robotics, based out of Montreal, Canada. Zulfika, it's a real pleasure having you with us today. Thank you, Rachel, and uh, thank you, Salt Talks, for uh, having me on Salt Talks today. I hope we keep it uh, salty and spicy today, and not uh, boring. Look forward. Yeah. Is that a promise or a challenge? I'm not sure. But um, when I was reading your bio, I subbed it down quite a lot. You've, you've done a lot of things throughout your career. But before we begin, just tell me a bit about your personal background and how you ended up where you are today. Sure, I'll be happy to. So, well, I'm predominantly a hospitality graduate in, uh, in various countries. So I started off with uh, studying in my home city of birth, which is Mumbai in India. And I studied hospitality at one of the heavily competing and a very, uh, you know, how Indian institutes are. There's a lot of competition for your seat. You have to fight with perhaps uh, 4 million students who compete with you. But that's a good way to bring up yourself. And after that, I went on to study more hospitality in Switzerland. And uh, the idea behind me studying hospitality was not because I wanted to be a chef or a cook or something, but the idea was more or less to develop uh, hotels and value-added real estate when I come back to my family business because as a predominant, as a family, we are a real estate company based in India. And I wanted to bring my expertise and not just build uh, buildings and mortars and you know, bricks and mortars, but to add some landmark to the location and to that particular street or that particular city. So that was the reason why I wanted to study more of hospitality. So I went on to do master's from uh, University of Cornell. And um, before that, I was at Swiss Hospitality School in uh, Switzerland, and also went to London for University of uh, London, as well as University of Derby in um, uh, the Derbyshire, of course. And uh, after all this education, I worked uh, with uh, Intercontinental Hotel Group. I worked with Starwood. I worked with higher chain of hotels. And uh, in a very short span of time, I climbed the corporate hierarchy because I was youngest to have that kind of qualification and at the same time ready to be kicked to different cities. So my management will be more than happy to let me take a transfer rather than asking Joe, who is already 50 years of age at my level of designation, who's got family and can't move much easily. So 
in like span of four years in the US. I was in Midwest, in Chicago. I was in uh, Tennessee, Nashville. I was in New Orleans, in uh, Louisiana. I don't know how many of you all know about that place, but it's a beautiful jazz music uh, place. I was in Los Angeles. I was in Miami. And then finally, I came back to India briefly. And uh, I started with uh, hospitality and real estate consulting. I realized there was a lot of uh, brands who wanted to move into India at that time. It was a buzzing economy back then. I'm talking about early 2005 and six. That's where all the investments were coming into India. The private equity players were coming in. That's a year when um, all the Morgan Stanleys of the world were moving in to invest money. So I thought it was an exciting space to start your career with consulting, you know, in uh, Asian economies and emerging markets. That went pretty well for me. And um, the turning point, what brought me into the UAE was uh, one of the assignments for a hotel development, which I'm not supposed to talk about, but um, I went to meet the promoter and they just negotiated a deal with one of the brands. And uh, I happened to ask him if I can jump onto this assignment and perhaps help him save some um, on the agreements. And he's like, what can you do? I said, I was on the other side, the side which is dealing with you today. At some point I used to be on that side. And they agreed to allow me to negotiate on their behalf. And we realized I could uh, seriously save a good 78% for them. And that immediately made me a blue-eyed boy of one of our royal family members. And uh, that was my beginning with uh, the Abu Dhabi royal family as an advisor, as uh, someone who would be investor man investment manager for them. With that as a career beginning in the UAE, it was uh, early 2011, 2010-11. That's when I started. And hence, uh, after that, uh, went on to find, found a couple of other large companies, which again, uh, I moved on from them. The idea was to encourage FDI into UAE because I realized there was a big gap between people who wanted to come and do business in UAE and bring in their investment. And I felt as an investment manager, if I have to invest money, I don't have to go into another country and invest. I rather could bring those companies into UAE, invest with them in UAE, which is a home for me, which where I have a better control over the market dynamics. And once the repo, once the partnership sets in in the right way, then perhaps I could go with those uh, uh, companies, you know, two different countries then and explore partnerships. So the idea was from then on, uh, from your country, come to UAE and from UAE, we go to the world. Exactly. That's great. Yeah, the sort of theme about the UAE being a, a gateway to the rest of the world does come up again and again. So I would like to touch on that a bit later, as well as the work that you're actually doing under the chairmanship of His Highness. But you mentioned about your family business in India, what sort of things are they investing in? Do you think that the experience in your personal family business has helped with working with the Sheikh, which I guess in some senses is, is also a family business? Yes, absolutely it does. And um, so a little bit about our family is that we migrated from Iran almost uh, 300 years ago into Bombay, which is uh, the place where our family originates from. and. Uh, uh, the first sheriff during the Bombay presidency, during the British rule, was also our family. And we always were aggressive and uh, very much in the forefront in terms of business and politics. And we started our career almost 150 years ago with business was more of in the steel and general trading of commodities and the land development. So what we see a Palm Jumeirah in uh, Mumbai, in, in Dubai today, was something we developed in Mumbai in 1980s. So we have a fairly good amount of experience of dredging and creating cities out of water. And we are also known as pioneer for social housing and slum rehabilitation. If you know the city of Mumbai, it has got a lot of slums. 
and a lot of issue of uh, poor hygiene and poor housing quality. So our family decided at some point that we're not just going to be building buildings and uh, adding money to our coffers, but at the same time, we'll do a lot of social housing as well, wherein we develop homes for poor people and, and upgrade those lifestyles and upgrade those land, landmarks and create a beautiful city. So we did well and we've rehabilitated more than 40,000 families so far. So we are known for our construction. We are known for our uh, business in the business community we come from. So it's going pretty well. And uh, my idea when I wanted to join the family business was to build more assets that we can retain and hold because more or less whatever we developed was uh, residential and commercial, which we just sold. Because in India, it's not a very renter's market. It's more of a you know, market where people just buy it out. You know? They love to buy real estate and gold, of course. So, but I wanted to come back and build more hotels, build more malls and value-added real estate, you know, where we could just look at long-term yield returns and then create a REIT out of it and list those REITs. That was my idea of doing things, which I did for some time. I still continue to do. We are developing well, the tallest uh, residential building in India right now. It's a 91-story building in a landmark location in Mumbai. And uh, that was, again, a good experience for me as well because I was involved in planning from day one and sales and marketing, and we did pretty well with that project. It's almost complete now, so we're up for another challenge. So yeah, the, the knowledge that I gained from family business certainly helped me since childhood. I've seen master plans and how those master plans were executed, how uh, the politics was man managed, how the finances were raised, how the social stakeholders were taken care of, uh, how we managed and challenges with the technology, availability of resources, you know. So I've seen that whole nine yard and legalities and environmental concerns. So the whole pestle analysis, the whole PSTLE was taught to me since beginning of my life. So I never believed in SWOT analysis, by the way. I never think any threat or any weakness can be an obstacle if you have the right political alignment, uh, if you have a right financing in place and investment and a capital, if you have stakeholders happy with you, uh, and of course, if you've taken care of uh, the legalities and the environment and the sustainability part, sustainability part, I don't think so. anything can be a weakness. It's all about execution. So yeah, that's my take on that. So it definitely helps me yes, in today when I manage Royal Affairs with His Highness Sheikh and the team and uh, also when I help companies. And it, it, the business just comes naturally to me. The moment I see the information memorandum, I know what to do with this company and I know how to execute this business. Yeah. That helps. That's great. I, I really want to pick up on the pieces that you mentioned on the social housing uh, and investing with impact as well, because I know this is an area of focus for you and something you're very passionate about. But let's talk about the types of work that you're doing under the chairmanship of His Highness. Are you looking predominantly at investments or you're looking at bringing companies to the UAE? What are some of your focus areas there? So three things. One is, uh, of course, uh, um, investment, but like I said, I like to invest with companies where I have a complete, I won't say I'm a control freak, but I like to have my wrap, hands wrapped around it, you know. Like I don't believe anyone should have a right, either it's my money or it's someone else's money. Nobody has a right to like, you know, play with it or do anything which is called injustice. So I like to be, to start with, I like to work on a secure return kind of a model where I have my downside protected for my capital and anything on top. Um, uh, the distribution waterfall, I leave it more in the favor of the entrepreneur so that he's more incentivized, you know, to work hard for the project. So that's my investment philosophy, if you ask me so. But uh, I look at it investing 
uh, more for uh, bringing in FDI into UAE. And uh, once we have set up the businesses with this company, then I want to go with them in various countries, like I said in the beginning. So investment, yes, is very much a focus. Then also, uh, there are a lot of companies who reach out to us when they look for a stronger partner in UAE, especially, you know. So, and they all feel and somehow have a belief that having a strong royal family office will definitely help them uh, to navigate the whole nine yard of the system. So and nothing wrong with it. I mean, we are as other everyone else and we openly help them and commit to supporting these companies to get all the business in place and uh, to attract uh, market, to attract uh, right kind of capital. And then from UAE to enter into Africa, to enter into Middle East region, because we see a lot of traction coming in from Egypt and rest of the North African countries. You know, they're booming, booming very well. Just today morning, I was evaluating one of the projects from Tunisia, one of the smart cities that is coming up. And I was uh, surprised to see that the young population is so aspirational. They have a good education now. They're doing very good on education. The men-women ratio of uh, the sex ratio is very good. The economic uh, diversity is very good. The demographics are well-educated and um, they have a very good uh, future in place. So yeah, so Middle East, North Africa and East Africa is booming. So that's what creates more opportunity for companies to set up their base in the UAE. And just some time back, I was in one of the webinar and the more chaos people see worldwide, the more they want to come to UAE. Especially right now, I was dealing with Chinese and Indian companies. So Chinese have a problem that nobody wants to touch made in China product anymore. And Indians have a problem that uh, they cannot import Chinese goods anymore. So they are not able to manufacture because most of their raw materials came from China. Of course, eventually they will evolve the whole local ecosystem. But by then, you know, long term, everybody dies. So it's a short term survival is a strategy for them. So we are helping these companies to migrate into uh, and set up something in UAE through our royal support. So that again is becoming a very important task for us. And tech and sustainable projects, emerging technology. We are about to announce our joint venture with one of the very large uh, uh, sovereign fund for uh, their Middle East and uh, UAE and uh, GCC strategy. So we'll be announcing that. That will add a lot of, uh, it's a third party investment, but it will definitely be routed through our uh, company and our holding company. So that will really add to us in a sense that we'll be now able to actively invest much larger than what we were actually investing as a family office. So that is going to be our focus area as well. And so when you're looking at these investments, you know, you mentioned uh, smart cities and other emerging technologies, the SME area in the UAE is obviously a very starved one in terms of capital. I think about 3.5% of bank financing, for example, goes towards SMEs. What are you doing to support those companies in the SME space? Yeah, so very interestingly, you touched upon SME because last uh, few months, I've been focusing a lot on SMEs and uh, the SME outreach program that we have created for, uh, especially for uh, emerging market companies, you know, from Indonesia, India, Nepal, um, countries like Vietnam and even Bangladesh, you know, there are a lot of these small, small companies which have a lot of scalability possible. So we are helping these companies. We are providing them with all the possible approvals and licenses that they need. And we are helping them create an ecosystem for themselves you know, in the UAE. And that's the best way to bring back employment in the UAE right now because a lot of people are losing jobs. And that's not a very happy situation. I mean, on LinkedIn and social media, my inbox is full of job applications. And I feel bad because I cannot employ all of them. So. 
it was in a way I wanted to do something so that I can bring more and more employment. And if you look at it, SMEs actually drive all the possible uh, uh, growth, you know, in terms of housing, in terms of uh, everything that, you know, so FMCG, consumer durables, everything succeeds if uh, SMEs are growing at the rapid pace and the right way. So yeah, we're doing quite a lot. We are helping them with uh, adequate financing. We're in fact helping them also to go and trade in Africa, you know, if they have contracts from public or private sector. We are helping them even with uh, trading, uh, trade finance, what we call it, uh, through our limits, as well as we have a couple of funds which only focus on trade finance with us. So we are helping SMEs to that, that effect, yeah. Those are some of the things we do. And you mentioned the, the hospitality industry. I know you have a lot of exposure to this with the family business and also uh, with His Highness. That's obviously been one industry that's been hit very hard with COVID and the, you know, the lack of travelers and, and tourists. How has your family business and the uh, His Highness's office adapted to this and what are some of the changes that you've had to make? Well, um, in the His Highness's office, the best thing is that uh, it's a patient money, it can wait. And uh, it is uh, not in a rush to repatriate itself because it's, it's a legacy investment. Uh, for our family business, yes. Um, again, we are not highly leveraged. So it's a very conservative family of mine, which uh, doesn't believe in borrowing. They believe that uh, their money is their money. And uh, it's recently just they invited a couple of uh, foreign players, institutions to participate in equity. But otherwise, they've always been a homegrown and self-driven company. So we're not very much uh, in a in a soup, but I would say, yes, situations are tight, uh, especially the real estate sector is totally, uh, I would say in a very, very, very bad shape in India right now, especially the luxury market. And we, we predominantly are known for luxury market. So luxury market has taken a lot of hit, but uh, just seven years ago, we decided to diversify into affordable luxury, where we decided to sell smaller units, focused on very small ticket size, under a million, because you know, in Bombay, in a city like Mumbai, each luxury apartment could be a million or two or more sometimes. So we decided to be within a million dollar limit. In fact, half a million kind of a limits and provide them with a lovely building with great facilities, gymnasiums and everything that a family would require, a family of four perhaps. You know? So we decided to design houses, smaller houses, smaller apartments, so that, but good locations and uh, with all facilities so that people are tempted to buy smaller apartments. You know? That kind of worked very well for us. So that way we were able to save ourselves at uh, the Royal Office, but uh, there's not much of an impact. In fact, uh, now that uh, I'm driving most of the investment initiatives, my focus is all gonna be investment in uh, emerging technologies and agriculture and agri-related businesses. So very limited exposure to heavy CapEx, um, very limited. Uh, I don't have uh, any liking for real estate sector anymore. Uh, some real estate, yes. Uh, some quality real estate, yes, which is income producing and uh, which is uh, which has great tenants in place, which I know will last forever. And uh, those are the projects that I'm highlighting and taking interest in. But otherwise, not going into greenfield projects, not going into futuristic long-term projects. Um, perhaps if there is a running office building with a good six to seven percent yield, I'm not very greedy. I'm happy with that. But that keeps you some real estate portfolio, you know, active. And of course, when the market improves, you go and cash on it. But at the moment, it's gonna be serious focus on emerging technologies, uh, AI-based companies, all FinTech-related companies. And uh, with the new farm bill in India, we're gonna now focus a lot on agriculture sector, 
and uh, retail. Yes, that's going to be the focus now. Well, that's a really great segue, actually, because I, I do want to go into more depth on the impact investment piece. But you mentioned some of the focus areas for India, and we've actually had a question coming in from the audience asking for your current views on the Indian market. I know you mentioned that you were doing some things in the $1 million affordable luxury range, but what's your current view on the Indian market? Is it still a very robust growth story? Well, um, if you initiate a project today, by the time you complete, it's gonna be somewhere between 24 months to 36 months. That's usually the time that you complete a project in. Uh, by then you will be in a very good situation. So if you're launching a real estate project, I would advise uh, we launch it in an affordable luxury segment, not go for a very high end and don't go for uh, uh, the social housing because there's already too many players in there. But uh, affordable luxury is the sector. India is predominantly a self-grown country, self-grown market. It doesn't depend a lot on imports. It doesn't depend a lot on exports. So it's an economy within itself, you know. So the most important factor is the political stability. And, um, and of course, the COVID has really made a big difference. Um, I may have my reservations about the current government in India, but this is not a political forum or a debate, so I will stay away from political discussion. But that is certainly some, some decisions which has not gone very well down with the industry. And that has led to a certain impact, which is, uh, I would say, self-destructive. We Indians sometimes can get self-destructive ourselves the smartest race from this world and we are self-destructive sometimes so i think um, but i think in the long term the market is very strong and there is a huge potential but in the short term yes there is a small pain it's just how you plan your financing and don't go too much on uh, heavily exposed on debt and even if it's a debt make sure your cost of borrowing is under control because the margins have been shrinking a little bit so you may not have a big cushion on your earnings after paying such a heavy debt yeah. I know there was a there was a big push, you know, in, a number of years ago to encourage more financial investment into India, and I think that's that's worked quite well to some degree. Do you think that that pace of investment is likely to continue? And I appreciate that you don't want to go into too much of the political discussion, but how do you sort of see that growth and traction of investment playing out when the world sort of returns to normal post COVID? Um, I think uh, the recovery in India is uh, going to be at least for a year. Uh, China equally going to take uh, six months to a year to recover. I believe uh, in uh, the fastest to recover would be the developing countries because they do not depend on exports a lot. So it's easier for, to, for them to recuperate within the country. So India, yes, within a year. But I think the Western countries, especially the developed markets like the US and the UK and the European world, I think it will be a slow recovery for them, simply because they depended a lot on um, exports and the countries who are importing from them are actually the worst affected. So it's going to be a little slow recovery. But like I said, I don't believe in threats and weaknesses and uh, uh, any kind of uh, negativity. I believe in positivity. So there are a lot of opportunities actually that has come our way from uh, Europe, some from Americas, and uh, we are exploring, uh, but again, not going very heavy on real estate, uh, going very much on FMCG, going very heavy on consumer durables. We are going heavy on uh, emerging technologies, which can be scaled very well in our part of the world, uh, because that's what we can control. Like I said, I like to invest. I'm not a control freak, but I like to be sitting next to the driver. 
and work hand in hand, you know. So, yeah, that's the, but I think the recovery should uh, uh, be somewhere between uh, 12 months, it's eight to 12 months. Exactly. No, that's great. And I'm, I'm with you on that, Zolfika. I've been called a control freak before and I took that as a compliment. So I understand your positioning there. We've had another question coming in from the audience, which I think you've answered in part with what you've just said about Europe. But the question was, I was wondering for such big markets and countries like uh, UAE and India, are these funds interested in investing in developed markets, i.e. to European markets? And I think you did touch on that in your previous answer, but maybe you could talk about specifically in Europe, some of the sectors that you find most interesting. So I am looking at some uh, industrial projects in uh, industrial companies and corporations, in fact, in uh, Europe. One such is an opportunity that we just uh, uh, gave a final term sheet to, which is a pharmaceutical opportunity from Germany. I think uh, that's a very good opportunity and uh, the valuations are very sensible. I would not say it's a steep downwards for them or a great deal for us, but it's a, it's a value for money. And I most importantly believe that that company will do very well in the Indian ecosystem and GCC ecosystem because more and more people are spending on health. And uh, so precaution has become more important than just a cure. So people are willing to pop those multivitamins now more and more. The vitamin C has become a part of daily lives, you know. So the healthcare is going to become the, the preventive healthcare, basically. So that's another area of interest that I'm focusing on right now. Preventive healthcare, yeah. That's so great. Europe plays an important role because uh, European companies have a uh, great, some of the great uh, industrial projects come in the pharmaceutical industry from a quality pharmaceutical comes from the area. So we are focusing on that. Um, so let's talk more about the, the impact investing piece. And firstly, I mean, it's great work that you're doing on this female empowerment. So I, I think that's really impressive, everything you're doing in that space. But on impact investing more broadly, it's obviously very important for families to leave behind some sort of legacy and not just financial for the next generation. So perhaps you can tell me more about some other initiatives that you're doing in the impact investing space and why this is so important for you. Yeah, I mean, I believe like uh, we have to invest our money, we have to invest our capital, but if that investment can create more jobs and if it can uh, make life easier and better for as many people as possible. So that's one of the core principles with which I look at a project to invest. So I'm not a very big fan of man on Mars or man on Saturn. Sorry, I mean, this is just personally me. I believe even after 200 years of industrialization, we haven't solved the basic necessities of humans on this planet yet. So I think it's time to actually focus on that. So what are the sectors? And, and everybody's running for that urban pie of uh, marketplace, which is just 35% in most of the markets, especially in the emerging markets. Like the other day, some brand approached me for partnering with them for India strategy. And they're like, oh, the market looks very cluttered. I said, no, you're not looking at the 65% of the rural market. You're only looking at the 35% urban market. And urban incomes are shrinking, while you can put more monies in the hands of the rural market, which is 65%. And like, how can we do that? I said, let's go and start agriculture. Going back to basics sometimes helps. You know, it's very basic sector, agriculture, but what we are doing, so, and I have created a whole ecosystem around it. It's not just, it's a random thought for me that, oh, let's go now to villages. No, it's not like that. In the last five to seven years of my career, 
I have invested in a fertilizer company. I've invested in potash, which is one of the very important component of fertilizer. I've invested in biostimulants. I've invested in seeds and processing units. So I've done a complete backward integration for agriculture sector. And now what we're doing is we come up with a very good scheme where we're going to the farmers. We're telling them, okay, we'll give you everything that you need for your production and your, um, your cultivation and your harvest. We will buy on a contract with you and we'll pay you double the amount that the government pays you. So there is no corruption. There is no allegation of any wrongdoing because we are paying anyways more than the government pays them, right? So, but what we're doing is we're cutting down the middlemen and because all the raw materials are owned by us, it's like our production and our companies. So we have a very negligible cost in terms of cost of cultivation. So there's a cost efficiency and yet because we have a technology and direct sourcing, we're able to cut down the complete middle market thereby saving almost 45% of the cost. And that benefit we are passing to the farmer and the rural areas, and at the same time to the urban market, which is the consumer. And that extra money, we are putting it back into the communities for healthcare, for education, for housing. So you are actually creating economy with that 65% of the pocket, and not just on that 35% in the urban area, where everybody is fighting. The Gucci's of the world, the Zara's of the world, everybody's fighting in that. You know, I don't want to be in that clutter. I want to go where nobody's going, which is a much larger area, which is 65% of the marketplace. There is allied activities with agriculture and the margins can be higher depending on how you process and international exports and stuff, you know, so that can really help. Now that we can even grow in deserts and we see half of China being desert, half of the Northwest part of India being desert, most part of Africa have absolutely zero water. Even in those situations, we can grow using modern agricultural technologies. So why not invest in that so that nobody goes hungry? You know, that's that's my vision. That's my thought process when it comes to investing. Yeah. And so I think that water question is actually a really important one. You know, we live in a, a part of the world that has very scarce fresh water supply. What what are you doing on the waterfront, and how are you doing the turning, you know, un, um, unfarmable land to farmable? So there are a lot of these new innovations, like just. Um, Four days ago, I saw one very innovative technology. So what they do is develop is uh, they have developed these uh, paver blocks, which you put on pathways and walkways. And these are something which, so the major problem is we're not storing enough rainwater. You know, like most of the countries of the world, barring some desert regions, which don't get rainfall. But otherwise, most of the regions of the world, they get good amount of rainfall. But still, the water goes down the drains and it goes into the ocean. So there's no one, no ways to conserve that. And in, especially in emerging markets and developing and underdeveloped countries, there's no such enough investment available to kind of actually create those kind of reservoirs. It costs a lot of money. So simply if you made, make roads made of these blocks, the road, these blocks have ability to absorb water and it takes it to the underground water reservoir in the central location and it keeps the water fresh for at least 12 years. You know, so that, these are some of the innovative ideas that we're implementing. And agriculture, we just uh, looked at one of the Israeli company the other day. They are number one in drip irrigation. And if it takes you uh, one gallon of water, then you just need uh, 100 ml of water compared to that. It's just the way you irrigate the whole land. So yeah, water is important, but the, the absorption of water, it takes its own time. So you pour a gallon of water on a plant, it's not gonna absorb all the water. It's like you can't drink a gallon of water at one time. But over a period of uh, one week, you can drink a gallon of water, right? So, so that's how it is. Yeah. 
That's fascinating. You did, touch, you did touch on looking at Israel, investing in a, an Israeli company. Maybe you can talk a little bit about the Abraham Accord and if Israel is, is now a market that you're, you're looking to more intently as a, as a result of that. Well, uh, like I said, I'm Indian as well. So I've always looked at Israel and uh, Cinemoa, the company that you talked about, is actually an Israeli founder. And uh, so I'm not new to working with Israelis and uh, my Jewish friends. In fact, 70% uh, of my partners are of Jewish origin. And uh, when we sit down and when you look at the global conflict, we laugh on it because we feel technically there is no conflict between us. You know, it's like I was using this a very apt example, like, I mean, Abraham Accord is basically the accord for the Jews, the Christians, and the Muslims. So we all believe in the same God at the end of the day. So it's like we all like and we believe that Domino's has the best pizzas in the world. It's just we have a problem with the delivery boy, you know? <laughs> so that's the only conflict we have. And the day we settle down on that conflict, I think we are good to go. But uh, I have uh, strong connections with a lot of my Jewish friends and uh, I believe they are just like you and me and they want happiness, they want education, they want freedom, they want peace. And so as me, I want the same things in life. And uh, some of the initiatives on cybersecurity, on uh, automotive vehicles, what I call AVs, and uh, some of the drone technologies that we're working on uh, that you read about ING Robotics. We are working with some of our Jewish partners in that. It's a company found in Canada, of course. And uh, I believe uh, we have one of the best uh, drone systems in the world. I cannot, of course, get into the technicality here. Uh, not the panel for that, but uh, definitely it's a very smart technology. Uh, we are working on smart cities, not just smart cities, but super smart cities. And there, are, there is a whole explanation to that as to how it can become super smart cities, uh, which is uh, absolutely in line with the sustainable development goals. And uh, I think the Abraham Accord, Abraham Accord will actually open more opportunities for everyone in the region. You know, because the most important consideration for every investor was, oh, it's a hot, it's a hot region, it's a volatile region. You know, now somebody says it's a volatile region and your eyebrows, really? You really think so? It's not, because the major region, reason for conflict is solved now. You know, so that has gone politically very strong message, you know, that we are ready to make peace no matter what it takes. And that is going to work very well for the whole region as a whole and not just for UAE. So people in the neighborhood who are not very happy with the decision, I don't know why, because it's actually going to help them and every one of us. So, in fact, everyone should work towards it. And I salute the vision of His Highness Sheikh Mohammed bin Zayed and, uh, of course, Prime Minister Sheikh Mohammed bin Rashid for kind of uh, taking this bold initiative. And this is going to be a very long term and uh, it holds a very bright future for the GCC and Middle East, actually, or for the world, I would say, rather. Yeah, I, I completely agree with all of your points, except for the point you made about Domino's Pizza being the best in the world. Rest of your points. <laughs> I agreed with. Uh, we have time for one more question, so I'll, I'll just give you a slightly easier one to finish on. Perhaps you could talk about how you think your training in hospitality and that, that sort of customer outward focus has helped you in your career and in your life to date. I, I learned one thing, like uh, uh, it's about, it's the 10% which is the situation and 90% is your reaction to that situation, you know? So in hospitality, I always learned about you attitude. So whenever I saw an angry customer or a, or a guest, you know, all I it took was an appreciation and uh, a little bit of a care, a little bit of uh, affection, 
and put yourself in their shoes and think how are they feeling in that situation you know you may feel like oh how can i do this and what can i do to make this guy happy so if you leave that attitude and rather think what is that that he wants and how can i make him happy and that will really go a long way so in my business dealings i always so whenever i prepare my presentation i don't prepare for what i want i prepare for what the other side wants from me and if i'm going to give him what he wants he'll automatically give me what i want you know because that's how you win in business so it's called the u attitude and i always carry that u attitude with me so that's something i learned a lot and we were thought no matter how much the pressure you always will smile and no matter how much the other side is uh, stupid or wrong you'll always still smile so <laughs> you know that always helps trust me you know i have come across uh, a lot of people and uh, not everybody is happy to see you grow and progress but you take them in your stride and and that's what i do and this is part of my training and i mean i can go on telling you the goodness of the hospitality and the service industry but service industry just makes you for life because your business is uh, not done on the office table but on the uh, dinner table and over a drink and that's where we have our mastery because we are trained in hospitality so when you ask next time for dinner i'm going to suggest you uh, alsace gravestromener wine with uh, la huitre the oysters so i'm sure you're going to be more than happier you know to have that kind of a starter with a lovely wine so i mean that's how we are trained to dress to kill and smile to impress well that's great that's a very optimistic positive note to end on so zulfikar just like to thank you so much for your time today it's been a pleasure speaking to you as always my pleasure rachel thank you for inviting me i've always been a big fan of you and uh, i think uh, it's my fan moment today So Rachel thank you for inviting me and this lovely interview and uh, again Joe uh, thank you for helping coordinate this thing and everyone who posed their questions and people who are listening to us thank you again for your time and attention and wish you all the best with your health and wherever you are please be safe this year just save yourself as Jack Ma said the biggest profit of this year is you are safe and you are alive that's most important 